Let's open our Bibles this morning to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses in this uh, chapter today. I ended last week's sermon, uh, the sermon was, Is Your Faith Dead or Alive? at the end of chapter 2, with nine questions that Warren Wearsby had written. And those questions are designed to ask ourselves if our faith is genuine. And several people have asked if they could get a copy of that. Uh, So I've made those available. They're on the back table in the lobby. And so you're welcome to take those. Those are Warren Wiersbe's, and and we've given them credit there at the the bottom of that page as well. Well, the book of James is written in a very practical style. There are 108 verses in this book. And out of those verses, there are 54 of them. uh, There are 54 imperative verbs. James is telling us how believers ought to live. An imperative verb is is more or less a command. This is what you need to do. And James is a book that shows us our faith. Now, I would think that a good theme that I've used before in Bible Institute is helping believers mature. And so that's the theme that I would gravitate to if you wanted one for the whole book. So far, we've been seeing how genuine faith affects the way that you live. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ, that faith, if genuine, is going to change your life. It's going to affect everything that you do. So we saw that genuine faith gives you strength through trials in chapter 1. We also saw that genuine faith helps you find victory over temptations. And then, also in chapter 1, genuine faith is obedient to God's word. That verse that we all hear, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James 1.22. And then fourth, genuine faith treats everyone the same. Genuine faith is impartial. And last week we saw genuine faith is evidenced by works. He said in verse 18, show me your faith without thy works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, today in uh, these 12 verses of chapter 3, we'll see that faith is evidenced by a controlled tongue. Oh boy, yeah. The test of the tongue is the title for today. Before we begin our study on this uh, short passage, I'd like everyone just to turn to someone near you and say something nice, say something kind. Can you do that? Just go ahead. Okay, don't go overboard. (laughs) Okay, make sure they're honest. Make sure. (laughs) Okay. Suppose... If you look back at the last week and someone were to have taken a record and, and you were given $10 for every encouraging thing that you said to someone and you were charged $20 for every bad thing that you said about someone, would you have enough to go out to lunch today or would you be, <laughs> or would you be in the hole and asking to borrow? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the power of the tongue. Listen to just some words from the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 18, there is, understood he, there is he that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28, he that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
And they that love it, that is, love using words correctly, they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs 21, 23, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Layman Strauss, the book, uh, a book we're going through on, on Wednesday nights, he's the author, he, he said uh, of the uh, commentary on the book of James, and he said, no portion of the epistle of James is more urgently needed in our churches than this section before us, these 12 verses. There are many earnest Christians who consider themselves to be utter, utterly unaware of the ways in which they sin with the tongue. He goes on to say, I consider the teaching in James chapter 3 to be a key solution of most of the ills in church life today. The sins of the tongue is something that we covered not too long ago in Respectable Sins, chapter 19 of Jerry Bridges on Wednesday night. So some of this may be repetitious for those of you who are here, but the Bible is, uh, is full of riches that we can go back and mine more from. These 12 verses can be divided into, uh, into three groups of thought, four, groups, four verses in each group. And so those will take our outline, the controlled tongue in verses 1 through 4, the damaging tongue in verses 5 through 8, and the inconsistent tongue in verses 9 through 12. So the controlled, the damaging, the inconsistent tongue. Each of those four verses are designed with two, the first two verses are ex an exhortation. Again, James giving us those imperative verbs. And then the, the next two verses in each of the three sections are illustrations of what we've just been told to do. So the controlled tongue, verses 1 to 4. The tongue is made up of several muscles, four pair of internal muscles combined with external muscles. And all of these work together to help us move food around in our mouth and form words as we speak. Have you ever noticed that when you get something caught in your teeth, how your tongue can find that right away, but as soon as you put your finger in there, your tongue has to show your finger where it is. <laughs> when James is talking about the tongue that's controlled, he's talking about the ability to say the right things. The exhortation in verses 1 and 2, and, and what he's saying here is don't underestimate the power of your words. The responsibility of the teacher is brought into focus in verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. In the setting here, apparently everyone wanted to teach. The teachers among the Jews were called the rabbis. They were respected for the wisdom of the Old Testament law. The studies that they had from day to day always surrounded that Old Testament law. It's human nature to want to know truth and to be able to pass that truth along to someone else. Don't you love children? They just hang on every word that you say, and they believe what you say. Well, we want to do that. We want to help others. But there can be great harm done if you give the wrong information, if what you're saying is not true. James isn't saying that nobody should teach. He's saying that if you do, you have a greater obligation to make sure that you're saying the right thing. Every believer is to have a controlled tongue. But a believer who stands in front of others and teaches God's truth is held to a higher standard for the things that he says. Again, God wants us all to be able to explain Bible verses to other people, especially for them to understand how they can know for sure that they have eternal life. And so we need to know God's word. 
But we also need to remember that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Sevierville, Tennessee, there's a store called Smoky Mountain Knife Works. The store started in the early 70s when two men were selling pocket knives out of the, the back of their pickup trucks. And now they have a 108,000 square foot showroom. It's advertised as the world's largest knife store. Well, several years ago I stopped and I was looking through the, over the counters of the knives and I asked the salesperson there, um, how many people cut themselves with, with the knives when they're looking at them? And he reached down under the counter and pulled out a box of Band-Aids. And he said, just about everybody, in fact, all of the workers have used some of these too. Well, God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and we need to handle it carefully. Uh, allow it to do its surgical work in a life. And as you do, make sure you recognize its power. Know what it says. Know how it applies. I love Acts 17 and 11, and I hope our church is like that church in Berea. It says, these were no, more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. We need to know God's word. We need to handle it correctly. Well, the problem was there's a greater judgment here for someone teaching something that, again, isn't true, and so there's a greater responsibility to get it right. Paul warned in Romans chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? As James begins this chapter, he includes himself with these teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, a greater judgment held to a higher standard, a greater accountability for teachers. What's the effect when you read a warning passage like that? Well, number one, it's going to eliminate people who should not be standing up and teaching something that isn't true. Number two, it'll cause those who do teach to practice what they preach or teach. It'll all, always cause others uh, to make sure that they know and teach what is true. So there's a huge obligation here for teachers, a divine accountability for what's taught. We move to verse 2, and we find that a controlled tongue is an evidence of Christian maturity. For in many things we all offend, or we offend all. Now, there's a period there, so uh, it's, a, it's a little stilted in the way we say it. We could say, in many things, we all offend. Okay? That's the sad truth. Now, it also says, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able to also to bridle the whole body. The truth is that many of us, uh, or all of us, do offend at times. You probably can think back at something that someone said in your life that you bring up in your memory, and it still hurts. It still stings. You don't forget what they said. You realize that you probably did the same thing to someone else, and they're, they're mulling over that thing that you said. It's very difficult to not offend. Uh, the test here, a controlled tongue, marks a controlled person. The mature Christian doesn't offend others with his words. The proof here 
A mature Christian has control of the rest of his life as well. Now the word perfect here is not sinless. It's that word teleos, which means mature or fully grown. And then, uh, so he's perfect, and he also, he's able to bridle the whole body. When we have self-control over the most difficult member to keep control of, then we probably have control over other members in our body as well. I'm not going to say something in retaliation as, as, as quick-witted as some of you are and as sarcastic as you could be. You bite your tongue, okay? And if you can control your tongue, then your fist is probably not going to find his nose as well, okay? You have control over your other members. Now James moves right into some of the illustrations now. And there's one, there are two of them here. Uh, that show us how to understand the truth of this controlled tongue marked by a controlled life. The illustration uh, in verses 3 and 4, one is the animal kingdom and the other of engineering or in shipping. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. And the horse and the bit. There are a lot of styles of bits that help us, uh, help horsemen control the animals, uh, whether they're compliant or non-compliant. Uh, my grandmother used to take me to yard sales. This is one that was made by a blacksmith. And, and you can see it's a very old bit, but bits have been around for a long time. Now, this is a single joint bit. It's one of the most gentle styles of bits uh, designed for young or sensitive horses. And uh, it, it, it also has this hanging cheek bar, which makes uh, reining the horse a little bit easier. So it's a very simple bit. Um, whatever style bit is used, it doesn't work unless it's in the horse's mouth. You can't put it anywhere else on the horse to control the horse. It has to be in its mouth. Why? When the rider has control over the mouth of the horse, he has control of the entire animal. A wild horse is of no help to man. It has to be controlled to ride. It has to be controlled to be hooked to a plow, to be hooked to a wagon. And the application here is an uncontrolled tongue is of no help to God. It has to be brought under control to be useful. The second illustration is of a ship that is steered with a rudder. Uh, I didn't have enough room to bring a rudder in to give that as an example, uh, but you know what those are. Uh, James is, tells us about two great forces that need to be addressed when it comes to a sailing vessel or a ship. The first is the size of the ship. Now in Roman times, I think the biggest vessel they had, a barge was 300 feet long. There were sailing vessels up to 180 feet long, 40 feet wide. The one that Paul was on when he was on his way to Rome that was shipwrecked at Melita had 276 passengers on board. So we're not talking about just a little boat on the Sea of Galilee. This, these were huge ships. And so you have the size of the, of the ship and also the strength of the wind. Those are the two that James mentions in verse 4. Strong winds can drive a ship off course. The one thing that control both of these forces is the rudder. Relatively a, a small part of the ship. 
Um, you also have here a helm that's mentioned. Now today that means the ship's wheel. The word here in the Greek language uh, has to do with a foot, or, or um, it's a um, pedalion, which might be a pedal, uh, something very small, like an oar that's placed in the, in the water. But uh, he's talking about the rudder here. So just as with bits for horses, there are a variety of styles of rudders. The general rule of thumb for ancient sailing vessels was that the rudder would be about 2% of the size of the, of the ship itself. So both horse and sailing ship are controlled by something pretty small. So the tongue, the point that James is making, the tongue is a small member. But when it is under control, the person can be useful to God. The controlled tongue. The damaging tongue, verses 5 through 8. The exhortation, don't underestimate the damage that words can inflict. An uncontrolled tongue can do a lot of damage. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. That's the word Gehenna. Let's consider the extent of the damage the tongue can do. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. It's just a little member, small in comparison to the rest of our bodies, and yet it boasts great things. Our tongues want to say good things about ourselves, filled with self-centeredness, promoting the one who owns that tongue. I love Proverbs 27, 2, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Well, the tongue does a lot of damage. The tongue is a fire. There are two metaphors that are given here. It's a, it's a fire. It's a world of iniquity. And then two descriptions of what it does. It defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature. So the metaphors, the fire, uh, the tongue is a fire. It, it's not as a simile, but a metaphor. It is a fire. It does destroy people. It's a world of iniquity. It's an all-encompassing evil. You can say anything, and, and it can hurt. It defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature. The tongue sets the course and then runs the entire course of human nature, setting fires all along the way. I thought of Samson, who tied the tails of those 300 foxes together in pairs and set burning firebrands between them, sent them through the standing grain of the Philistines, and burned it all down. And so the damaging words that we let loose will cause great destruction. In 1871, you know how Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked the lantern over and half of Chicago burned to the ground. In 1953, a pan of rice boiled over in Korea, and in less than 24 hours, 3,000 buildings in a square mile were destroyed. In the summer of 2018, the Mendocino fire in Northern California burned for 160 days, destroyed 159,000 acres. It was the biggest of its kind in, until that, that date. It was caused by a spark of a hammer striking a, a, a metal stake into the ground. Just a small thing. Just a small spark or a, a candle that a child could blow out 
And yet if it's out of control, it will spread as long as it has fuel and oxygen. Our tongues are capable of setting fires that can cause great damage. Maybe you're aware of things that you've heard and you can verify, yes, that's exactly what it did. The source of the damage, notice it is set on fire of hell. End of verse 6. Satan is the one who's behind every unclean word, every untrue statement, everything that is motivated by anger. He's the author of all that's divisive. You say, is it really that big a deal? I just lost my temper and I let some words out. It's no big deal, is it? God says don't underestimate the power of the tongue. It can do great damage. That lie, that word of gossip, that harsh rumor, that unkind word, that confidence that you were supposed to keep, and yet you let it out. But everything got out of control, and the fire spread. And all those fires are started by Satan. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. The illustration in verses 7 and 8, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea are tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Animals can be tamed. Now, he's not talking about being tamed as a house pet. You wouldn't have a lion, probably, in your house, but subdued. And so you have beasts that are brought into submission by a command. Birds are trained to mimic the human voice. Uh, Serpents have been caught and subdued. Sea creatures have. But the tongue, no one can tame. Verse 8, the tongue can't be tamed by any man. It's an unruly evil. Unruly is the word that was used back in James chapter 1, verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so the tongue, like on the periodic chart of the, the elements, uh, the table, you can find things that are, that are volatile. They're unstable. The tongue is unstable. Uh, like a wild animal that turns on a man who who thought he had it subdued. So the tongue is unpredictable in its power and hurt. It's full of deadly poison. You're talking about the venom, perhaps, of a a snake. The venom that you have in your mouth can destroy a person's reputation, can do great damage. You might say, well, what's the use of trying then? If the tongue can't be tamed by man, what hope do we have? Well, I have good news. God can tame any tongue that's surrendered to him. David said in Psalm 141.3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Psalm 19.14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Jesus told his disciples, Out of the heart the mouth speaketh, Matthew 12.34. So God can clean up your tongue, and he does so by cleaning up your heart. So surrender your heart and surrender your tongue to the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Ask yourself before you say something, is this true? And then is it kind? Some true things are not kind. (laughs) Is it true? Is it kind? And then is it necessary? Three great questions to ask. You might even ask a close friend to help you by reminding you when you say something that is damaging, that's hurtful. Warren Wearsby writes about a pastor friend of his who had a lady in the church who gossiped, and she would be on the phone most of the day sharing what she, would know, what she knew with anyone who would listen. She came to the pastor one day and said, Pastor, the Lord's convicted me of the sin of gossip. 
my tongue is getting me and others into trouble. The pastor doubted her sincerity. She had gone through this same routine before, and he asked her what she planned to do, and she said with pious fervor, I want to put my tongue on the altar. And the pastor said, there's no altar big enough. (laughs) I laughed when I read that too. But then I thought there is. God can forgive. There is no limit to his forgiveness. And whatever your tongue has done to get you into trouble, God can forgive you for that. The inconsistent tongue, verses 9 through 12. Their exhortation, verses 9 and 10, he's saying, stop speaking evil of, other, of others, of men. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So he's, he's saying, with your tongue you're blessing God, and then you're turning around and you're cursing people who are made in the similitude or in the image of God, in his likeness. When someone treads on the American flag and shows contempt, they're showing contempt for our country, America. When they burn the flag, they're showing disrespect to our nation. It's not just cloth and thread. We know that's what it's made of, but it's what it represents. And so when you speak evil of a person, you're showing disrespect to his creator, to God himself. The illustrations here in verses 11 and 12. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Answer is no. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? No. Either of vine figs? No. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Now the fountain that he's talking about is a spring. And it, it, when you go to a spring-fed stream or water and, and get a drink, it's fresh water. If it's near the ocean, there can be springs that are salty or that are brackish. And and as soon as you taste it, you know this is not good to drink. That same fountain can't produce both fresh water and salt water at the same time. The salty or the brackish, the bad water will turn the good water bad. The fig tree, fig tree doesn't produce olives. The olive doesn't produce figs. And the lesson from these illustrations is clear. A Christian should have words, should have a tongue that speaks like a Christian. You're judged by your words. If you're continually talking like a lost person, it is pretty good evidence. Maybe you've never been saved. Jesus is the one who can change your heart. And as he does, he will eventually change your mouth. There's a stern rebuke that James gives back at the end of verse 10. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Again, my brethren, we've read, read that word several times in the text today. He, he is being compassionate to the people that he's writing to. This is a gentle reminder that we're all in the same family of God. But these things ought not so to be. Hebert writes, it's entirely inappropriate and unbecoming among brethren. Our conclusion. How about your tongue? When you apply these three points today, is your tongue controlled? Do your words cause damage and hurt? Is your speech inconsistent? Does it not match up to your 
your claim to know Christ. You sing his praises and then you turn and tear somebody else apart. Words are more powerful than we think. The tongue is more damaging than we realize. It proves to all who we really are. It is a test of our faith. There was an Egyptian pharaoh who gave a sacrificial animal to Bias, his wisest counselor, and he asked him to return to him both the best and the worst parts of that animal. And Bias gave him the animal's tongue. Your tongue can be a powerful tool in the hand of God for good, or it can be used to do great damage and hurt. This morning, will you surrender your tongue to Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would use this very practical section of scripture to change the way that we think about what we say and help us to surrender our hearts to you and also in that surrender realize we're surrendering our tongues to you as well. I pray that you'll have your way in each heart here. In Jesus' name, amen.